0: Hey, well, good evening, everybody. I'm excited to be back um, to continue our series on the parables. What I want you to do uh, is go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. We are going to be camped out in there tonight. As you're doing that, I want to remind you kind of the bigger picture of the series that we're doing. So, if you recall, when we started this series um, a few weeks ago, it was a parable about uh, some seeds, right, that get scattered on the ground and get planted. And as we move through this series, actually the last parable that we are going to look at is going to be a parable about a tree that's fruitful. So what we, what we are doing through these, uh, you know, through these different teachings is really looking at all these various parables And helping us to see how we can grow from seed to fruit. How that seed can grow up in our lives and produce and become a tree and produce good, healthy fruit in our lives. That's the big picture of this true fiction series as we're looking at the parables. So, which is kind of neat. So, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 18 tonight. We're going to be looking at a very famous parable. Um, and, but we're going to do some work uh, really looking all around that. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 21. And we're going to read all the way through verse 35. And my eyes are not getting any younger, so I'm going to need to do this. So, all right, let's start at verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Or maybe some of your Bibles say 77. Verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It was the word of the Lord for us tonight. Let's, let's pray and ask for some wisdom. Father God, um, thank you for tonight. Again, thank you for a place to gather and uh, open up your word and, and hear the words that you spoke as you walked this earth. Um, words that you spoke on purpose. Stories that you told to help us understand who you are, who we are in you, how we are to live um, in this world as your representatives, as your ambassadors, as your children, um, as your body. Um, Lord, uh, so I just pray as we go through um, this uh, passage tonight um, that you would give me the right words to say, that, that you would give us all understanding and how we are to uh, really internalize this and apply this, and so we can best live this out mostly, first of all, uh, for your glory, and then for our and others' good. Um, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, this word up here, I don't have my big marker, but I'm going to try to write big, and hopefully I can spell correctly. You see this word? I think I spelled that right. So the word is extravagant, extravagant. So when you hear this word, when you see this word extravagant, what are some images um, that come to mind what are some things that come to mind when you hear the word extravagant just shout them out what's that over the top what else excessive, excessive. what loud okay well anything else any like word any pictures images a wedding, a wedding? okay sure sure wedding a palace, right? Yeah, yeah, places like that. I was, uh, I had the uh, the privilege, the honor, because uh, it's one of my favorite teams. Uh, I went to the Notre Dame game this last weekend, um, saw them play Stanford and saw them win, which was really awesome. And, uh, you know, and so you walk around campus, and cause it's just a really cool campus, and, you know, they have this, um, they have this chapel there, and, uh, you know, and, and one thing I was talking with uh, my buddy James I was with... And uh, you know we see it here too. You know, uh, there's a couple, there's a couple of the cathedrals and you know the parishes around here. And one thing the Catholics made it sure that they did at their churches was, was was really build them with grandeur, right? Uh, because they wanted people to walk in and feel. This reverence and feel that they are small and God is big is kind of why they did that with their architecture. And you know, but you see a lot of stuff, I mean, it's like gold leafed everything and right murals everywhere. It's a very extravagant kind of environment, right? So, um, so we, we, you know, we think of these very um, excessive, opulent, you know, those sorts of things when we hear this word extravagance, okay? I want you to keep that in mind because the whole idea of extravagance is going to be very key to our understanding of the parable tonight, okay? Now, as we jump into this, we have to do a little bit of homework about really why Jesus was saying what he was saying, why he was teaching what he was teaching. Now, Jesus told this parable with the immediate context of a question that Peter asked him in verse 21. That's the immediate context. You know, when Peter says, hey, you know, how often do I need to forgive this guy who keeps sinning against me, right? Um, That's the immediate context. But what we really need to do is understand that Peter's question came from the larger context of the entire chapter. So we do need to back up a little bit and really have a good understanding what, here, listen, what I what I re- my prayer for all of you, for all of us is that we learn how to read God's word. That that we really understand how to study the Bible, and that we don't get so laser focused on a word or a sentence or a verse because it's given to us in the context of an entire book of an entire passage. Okay, so um, part of being good Bible students is really understanding what's going on in the greater context around the verse or passage that you're looking at. So remember, Jesus never says or teaches anything without purpose. He's extremely purposeful. Uh, And his parables are always told with a reason. They're always told in light of who he's with and what situation they're in. And so Jesus tells a story to help us understand um, a truth about God and his kingdom and how life is supposed to work in us with him in light of those things. So to do that, we're going to look at briefly, as before we jump into the the guts of the parable, we're going to look at Matthew 18. We're going to go through it relatively quickly. Um, But what we need to understand is all of Matthew 18 is talking about how sin is to be dealt with as a community. Okay? That is what Matthew 18 is talking about. Here's what we really need to understand all sin is social. All sin is social. Here's what I mean by that sin is never a personal thing. It's never a personal thing. Because here, here's when, you know, we are designed for, and we are saved into a community, into a family, into a body, right? We just, we've been doing a series on Sunday mornings earlier, just a few weeks ago, you know, talking about these things. We are an interconnected body, so everything about us has ramifications on the body, you know, the sin that you think you struggle with in private, that you don't think anybody knows about, that you think is just between you and God that you're working through, does indeed affect the body. Because there are times where, you know, you know it, it, it's going to come out in your attitude. It's going to come out in maybe how you distance yourself. It's going to come out in, you know, maybe you have a sharp word um, you know, how you, and how you speak and things like that. So all sin is social. All sin has social ramifications on the church, on the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus gave us a very exhaustive teaching as we look at Matthew 18 to help us navigate through this because it's a big deal. It's a hard thing. Okay? So Matthew 18 takes a look at sin, Um, it looks at its causes, it looks at responses, and how we are to repent and forgive. That's what Matthew 18 is looking at. So let's just kind of look at this section by section. Um, We're not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to reference them. I'm going to trust you guys to be good Bible students and take your Bibles home and read them later this evening or tomorrow or the rest of the weekend, okay? So the first six verses of Matthew 18... Matthew 18, 1 through 6. That's the first section of teaching we get. And what Jesus is teaching here, he is warning us on causing others to sin and the consequences that follow that. That's that's what Jesus is talking about in these first six verses. I mean, they come to him and they start this chapter off asking Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's the greatest? Right? Now, we're like, okay, that actually sounds like a pretty decent question. That's a good theology question. Something we want to know. I'm just glad at this point, James and John aren't asking him again, kind of fighting over position because we read that a couple times. You know, James and John have gone to Jesus and they, they want to be sitting at his right hand. Their mom comes and talks to him about it. It gets kind of crazy. So, but they're just asking a good question. Who's the grace in your kingdom? Jesus calls over a little child and uses the child as an illustration uh, about humility and, and those sorts of things. Now, Jesus says in the first part of Matthew 18, he gives a warning. He says, "Um, but whoever, this is in verse uh, 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and thrown down into the sea. Okay, pretty extreme thing here. But here's what I want us to to see, Um, because sin comes up a couple times in this chapter this is actually a different word uh, for sin, um, and this word, the Greek word. I'm going to try to be impressive, right? With Greek, um, is I need to read my notes. Is skandalizo? Okay, that's the that's the Greek word for sin. And here, and you, you can you can you see a, a a root of a word that of an English word in here? Can you see scandal in here? Right. Um, so um, this word, scandalizo, actually literally means stumbling block. Um, or it could mean to trip up or to entrap. It's where we get scandal from. That's the word translated sin in verse 6. Okay? Now, there's a specific consequence with this type of sin, this causing to be a stumbling block. And here's what we need to understand about sin, everybody. On one hand, all sin is equal in the sense all sin will separate you from God and you need a savior for, for that sin no matter the degree of it. True? All sin is equal on that, in that light. But on the other hand, not all, sin, not all sin is the same. Some sin has greater consequences than other sin does. Jesus makes a very clear point here that if you cause a little one to stumble that has a significant consequence to it. Um, he, Paul writes in Corinthians about how sexual sin has different effects and consequences than other sin. Okay? So this is a clear teaching in Scripture, and I could pull out you know, you know, a number of other passages, but for sake of time, I can't do that. Um, so Jesus is saying here that being the cause of sin, provoking someone to sin, tempting someone to sin... Uh, is in a class of its own and has dire consequences that we need to be aware of. So he starts off with this question, who's the greatest, he, and within that, he teaches about a certain type, about sin. Now in the next section, in verses seven through nine, um, he talks more about temptations, temptations that come on you for sin. And his big point here is that we should take whatever measures are necessary For us to not be in a position to cave into the temptation to sin. We need to be willing and prepared to take action. Maybe even sometimes extreme action. To not put ourselves in a position to dishonor the Lord. Or to sin against somebody else. We need to be prepared to do that. You know, so when when Jesus talks about denying yourself, taking up your cross... You know, this is a common theme that we hear all throughout Scripture. We don't just get to do whatever we want. We don't get to minimize things. We need to take sin seriously. And let me point out here, too, that, you know, sin looks different to everybody. What's a a strong temptation for you may not be a strong temptation for somebody else. So we need to be very careful that we are not, you know, projecting Our convictions, our personal convictions, uh, you know, that that might be a gray area sort of thing, you know, on somebody else, and judging them accordingly to that—that's not right to do, you know. You know, let me give you a for instance. This is a completely anonymous story. This is not personal at all, okay? So you know, if you open up the Oreos and you eat one Oreo for you. Or for me, maybe hypothetically, that one Oreo could lead to eating the whole bag. True, right? Who's with me? I mean, I didn't raise my hand for that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You know, some some, somebody else may may, may, may not have that issue. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm with you all of that. All right, I'm bringing you Oreos next week, sweetie. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? So we need, to, we need to be, we just need to be aware and honest about it. And again, this is a whole other issue Paul talks about exhaustively in Corinthians, okay, about those sorts of things. The next section in uh, 10 through 14, uh, Jesus actually retells the parable of the lost sheep, which actually I taught on a couple weeks ago, okay? The big idea uh, in this retelling of the parable of the lost sheep is really showing God's compassion for those who wander from the flock, God's compassion for those who wander from the flock, so it really it makes us ask the questions to ourselves of, what is our attitude? What's my attitude? What's your attitude towards someone who is either young in the faith or just struggling to find their way? You know? And they're here, and they go. And they're here, and they go. And, and, you know, how do we think about them? How do we treat them? I mean, do we get frustrated with them? Do we get angry with them? Do we judge them? Do we say, man, can't you just get your act together? You know, and kind of shame talk them? And if we're not saying it out loud, are we saying it in here? You know, are we playing those games? Or are we really living like the shepherd in the story? You know, and do we act like the shepherd and we go get them and we go find them and we do all we can to love them and to help carry them back to the flock where they're going to be safe and where they're going to thrive and where they can be cared for and where they can find their way, right? Right? I mean that's what Jesus is getting at here because that's what God does with us, you know. When we, you know, um, you know, I love the, I, I love the the, the hymn, um, you know, with the with the with the line. Uh, it's come now, font of every blessing, and and you know, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right. I mean, listen, if we're honest, our hearts are always prone to wander. There's so many things that beg their attention and distract us from our faith and from our Savior. And, you know, and, and man, we need people to love us. We need people to seek out after us. And we need to be honest about our, 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 our temptation and our struggle with wandering with each other. Okay? We need to be aware of that. So, man, so man, if I... You know, if I, if I know there's something going on, you know, with Charlie or something, I don't see him around, I'm like, man, I wonder if it's that thing he told me about. And I'm gonna, I can call him and say, dude, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And, and ask, right? Yeah, I mean, that's really how God designs the body to work. And then this, this uh, next section, uh, verses 15 through 20, um, Jesus talks really here about how to rightly confront someone who has sinned against you. That, that's kind of the big picture with this. And, and the person potentially isn't aware of it. Okay, or they may be blinded by it. Okay, I mean, that's, that's a certain, that's an option here. Sometimes we, we, we do things and we say things and we don't understand what we've done and, you know, and we're naive to it and, and we don't understand how hurtful it is. Or maybe sometimes we are and we're just being rebellious. I mean, it could be all of it. But when someone sins against us, how do we rightly confront them? How do, we, how do we make that right? This is the famous passage of where we get our instruction on how to practice church discipline on somebody. You know, where you're supposed to go to them personally, and if, and if that doesn't win them over, you bring a few people with you, and you know, and, you, and you, if you need to get church leadership involved, you do that, or if you need to bring them before the entire congregation to the church, I mean, and the whole goal is you're trying to win over the brother, right? That's the heart of church discipline, and I'll tell you what, that is not a fun process to be a part of it is a weighty process if there is something that's going to cause a minister a pastor someone involved in the church discipline process to lose sleep it's going to be this because it's a hard it's hard stuff it's really hard stuff it's heart wrenching you know but the whole point like i said is really it's how to rightly confront and with the right spirit with the right goal with the right purpose i do want to pause because uh, since I had the opportunity and we're in this passage, um, I, I, I want to clarify a couple misunderstood verses in this section real quick before we move on because I, I, I just felt it was important to do. Verse 17, you know, uh, where Jesus says you, you, you do all these things and they're still, you know, refuses to listen. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Let me ask you a question. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He loved them. He showed grace to them. He received them. He ate meals with them, right? He showed that the kingdom of God was open even to them. So verse 17, listen, it is not a verse on excommunication. That's not the purpose of verse 17. The verse 17 is a call for us to love and evangelize to this person because my goodness, we're hitting them with all we we have, right? And if they're not responding... There's a lack of something in their life. You know what that lack is? (laughs) They don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus. They don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction, right, and to lead into truth. And so you know what? They need Jesus. is what they need. So it's a call to evangelize and to love them. And then um, verse 20 is another one that I think it's, you know, this is one of those gets ripped out of context. And we like to wave this flag around to verse 20 sometimes. Um, You know, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Um, Do you have to be with one other person for Jesus to be there with you? Okay. Good answer. Nice job, class. We you know we we gotta be we gotta be careful in how we use this verse. This is kind of becomes a Christianese verse. This kind of becomes a you know um, you know Jesus is here when we there's a, when there's two or three of us. Then all that sort of thing. Um, we need to understand God's omnipresence that He's everywhere. You know, and as one as people who are His children, upon salvation we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we we're, we're never we're never not in god's presence right amen okay which is a really great thing which is a really great thing uh, it's an encouraging thing you know uh we need to understand that we don't need to invite the holy spirit to be among us because the holy spirit's among us already right we, we, right yeah yeah come on um what is what is right, what is good when we pray those prayers, what we need to understand when we say those things is that we want our awareness to be open to his presence, right? We, we, we want to be in tune with God and to hear him and to be filled by him and, and those sorts of things, okay? Let's not think that when we come to church, you know, and, you know, and like Dan and Jenny and the band is up here and and we're singing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come fill this place and the atmosphere. However, the song goes that the Holy Spirit's like hanging out in the foyer, and He's not going to come in the doors until we sing the line, right? That's not what that means, <laughs> okay? Um, it's 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 being it's being uh, aware of his of his presence. Now, where this verse is very important, though, remember where it is in context of the passage. It's the last verse on the section on church discipline in the middle of a chapter on how to deal with sin. So what Jesus is meaning here is when you're doing this hard stuff, like I said, and it's hard, be encouraged that as you're doing this as a body that I am with you. I am right there with you. I am giving you wisdom, I'm giving you comfort, I'm giving you peace, I'm gonna help you through this. That's the spirit in which Jesus said these words, okay? Um, Because there's a saying I believe that's very true because we talk about sin and all this, I mean, and, and it stirs up emotions and we have reactions, right? There's a saying that says everybody loves grace until you have to be the one to give it to somebody, right? Because it's hard. It can be hard sometimes. You know, the temptation to hold on to hurt, to withhold forgiveness, to punish somebody so we feel vindicated. Those feelings can be strong in our lives. And we just need to be honest with that, and we need to run to God's Word, run to Jesus, Ask the Holy Spirit for strength and wisdom so we can do these things and live these things out rightly under his strength and not ours, his will and not our will. Right? Amen? Okay. This is the context, everybody. These 20 verses that we just overlooked, overviewed in 10, 12 minutes, this is the context in which Peter asks his question to Jesus because Peter's feeling, hey, sin's a big deal. It's a big deal. There's great effect on the body. Jesus, I get it. So here's my question. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, well, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Okay, that's Peter's question. So let's break the question down a little bit. He says, how often? He's asking frequency and limit. How much do I got to do this? Do I ever get to stop? Stop. Because I'm going to want to stop. Right? So he's, he's kind of trying to figure that out. Jesus, help me out here. Because, I, I mean, just like you and me, Peter's been sinned against a lot. And he's probably thinking, you know, I've been on, he's on the other side of the coin too, or he's the one sinning against somebody. So he's asking how often, he says, how often will my brother so he's talking about a relationship that he has with another believer. You know, we can look at it with each other, not just family, but in the church, as we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have, you know, these th- when these conflicts and these things come up, right? And it's so, you know, if it's, hey, if it's with someone that I don't see all the time, that one's easier. But I gotta see this person a couple times a week. You know, I'm in small group with, with this person. How do I do this? That that's where that's where Peter's going. And now, he uses he uses the word the word is translated sin. How often will my brother sin against me? Now, this is a different word for sin than we came that was in the beginning of the passage. This is why I'm writing these both up here so you can see. So this word. Let me get my spelling right. Whoop, that's an R. Uh, Yeah. Um, So this word is hamartano. Hamartano. That's translated sin here. Okay, and this is the the more regular word for sin that we see in Scripture. This is the word that we've, we've all probably heard this definition that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. This is God's perfect, desire right here in the center of the bullseye, and instead of hitting the bullseye, we're hitting the edge. You know, you know I don't know if you, go re- you guys remember, you know, uh, they're still around, but they were super popular like 10, 12 years ago when the Wii, the video game system came out, and on Wii Sports, you could play like the archery game, you know, and if you didn't like do the wind ride and all that sort of thing, you know, and the, the arrow's flying off, you're not hitting the mark. Okay, that's kind of, that's the idea. It's a violation of God's law. It's a violation of God's law. Now, and in this context, it's specifically in relationship with another person because Peter says, how often will my brother sin against me? So he's talking about this personal relationship. Now, we certainly miss the mark with God, but we also miss the mark with each other. That's what, Jesus, that's what Peter is, is asking about here, okay? Um, the, the person sinned against him, it's personal. There was a broken relationship. There was a broken relationship. When you sin against somebody else, the relationship breaks a little or a lot, depending on what the sin was. And then he says, forgive. How often will I forgive him? Well, what does forgive mean? Forgive means to release someone from a debt that is owed. Release somebody from a debt that is owed, letting go of a vindictive spirit, letting go of a vindictive spirit, and entrusting that person to God. That's what forgiveness is. Releasing from a debt that is owed, letting go of a vindictive spirit, and entrusting that person to God. Um, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, um, really talks about this last part. Um, Peter's writing about Jesus. He, He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who judges justly. Okay? So part of our forgiveness, you know, with those who sin against us, is entrusting them to God, of God being their judge, and we're going to really let God take care of it, okay, because it's way above our pay grade, okay? So that's what forgiveness is. See, forgiveness restores a broken relationship. That's what forgiveness does. When God forgives us, when he saves us, when our faith is placed in Christ, our broken relationship with God is restored, right? And we apply that to each other as well. So forgiveness restores a broken relationship, but we need to understand forgiveness also doesn't always remove the consequence of the sin, does it? Um, perfect example, probably the most famous example, is David and Bathsheba, you know, when David did that great sin. Adultery, murder, you know, and God forgave David, David repented, but the baby still died. There was still a consequence involved there, okay? So just because there's forgiveness doesn't always mean the consequence won't happen, and that's where you just need to put on your big boy pants or big girl pants and just pray, God, help me through this, and if I need to deal with this, I need to reconcile, those sorts of things, okay? That's kind of what we're looking at. And then the last part of his question, he says about seven times. Now, in Jewish thought and culture, and teaching in the Old Testament, there was this whole idea of three, you know, kind of three being the, like this the kind of whole number and, uh, you know, and, and releasing people from, you know, from, from grievances and those sorts of things. So, so Peter's being a little generous. Well, seven times. I'll go greater than three. I'll go to the, I'll go to the next kind of big round number. Right um, in 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 our in our faith, you know, seven's one of those numbers. There's Bible numbers, right? Three, seven, twelve, forty. These are these are famous Bible numbers. So he's like, I'll go past three. I'll go. I'll up you one, Jesus, to seven. Right. And so Peter, uh, Jesus hears Peter's question, and then Jesus answers him in verse 22. He says, "Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times." Seven or maybe 77. You see, here's the whole point. The whole point of this parable is this. Where Peter is showing generosity, Jesus is promoting extravagance. Where Peter was showing generosity. I won't do three, I'll do seven. P, uh, Jesus is promoting extravagance. That's the key to everything. Okay? So let's dig into this parable and really unpack this idea. So, in verse 23, Jesus begins to tell a story. He says, Therefore. And whenever you read in the Bible the word therefore, you're supposed to ask yourself, What's it? Therefore. Great job. Okay, it's connecting to what comes prior. So this, the parable is connected to what comes prior, which is the question and answer time between Peter and Jesus. And then he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so he's talking about what God's design and desire is. That's what he is going to be illustrating to Peter now. The design and desire of God as he rules his kingdom as we are subjects in his kingdom, and how we are to be generous and extravagant like our Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, now, he says, we, we need to, this is another key part to this. Uh, it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So, the king, is uh, he, 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 he's looking at his books, okay? And he's seeing what's owed. And, you know, you know for those of you who are financial people, you know, when you are looking to settle your books, okay, and making sure everything's square in your books, what's another word for that? What do we call that? Balance. Another word for balance? Reconciling. Thank you. It's reconciling your books. Reconcile is going to be a really key word for us. Reconcile is a key word for us. Okay. Verses 24 through 27 is the first part of the parable. It's about the king, it's about the servant, and it's about the debt. The king, the servant, the debt. And these verses show us two main things in 24 through 27. One, it shows us the immense size of this debt. We're going to talk about that in just a few seconds here the immense size of the debt, and also the extravagant grace of the king. Okay, that's the big thing we're going to get out of these few verses as Jesus starts this parable. Now, he says that this servant owed the king 10,000 talents. 10,000, everyone say that. 10,000 talents. A talent is actually a weight of measurement. Okay? Now, what this weight of measurement would equal would equal about 20 years. 20 years worth of wages. 20 years worth of wages is what this guy owed the king. Now... In modern money, and let's pick out, you know, who was it? Amazon. Just decide they're going to pay everybody $15 an hour, right? That's minimum wage at Amazon. In modern money, one talent would equal $500,000. $500,000. Now, we have to multiply that times 20. We are into the billions now. About six billion dollars. I don't know what in the world this servant was doing with that kind of money from the king. I mean, that's a crazy investment, right? But six billion, Now, because listen, the point isn't exactly how much money it is. But the point is to illustrate the vast amount of this debt. Okay? Now, the king sees that this is freaking the servant out. You know, there's no, how in the world do you repay that? You can't repay that. I was looking up, like, the the list of billionaires in the world. You know, I mean, there's crazy money out there, everybody. There's crazy money out there. To get down to people who are worth $6 Do you realize you're in like the high 200s? Like they're way away from the guy who's number one. They're way away from Bill Gates, who's like 98 billion. I can't even count to 98, like by ones, much less billions. Right? I mean, so we're talking, this is like crazy money. But the king has pity. And the king actually grants forgiveness of this debt. That is mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing to me. I mean, this is like, I mean, my goodness. I mean, I don't know what your mortgage looks like, but, you know, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, a house, it's a significant amount of money. Can you imagine if just the, the bank just says, hey, your debt's forgiven. You don't need to pay your mortgage anymore. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I'm heading to Hawaii tomorrow, Right? So that's really what these first few verses are. Now in the second section, the verses uh, 28 through 30, uh, in this section we hear again about the servant, but now we have another servant and another debt. In 18 through 30, This first servant, a second servant, and another debt. So the servant who was just forgiven an incredibly large amount is also owed money by another servant. And a good chunk of change a good chunk of change. In today's money, the 100 the, 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 the denarii that is, denarii that is um, owed um, would be about 20 grand. Okay? About $20,000 in today's money is what the second servant owed the first servant. okay? Because one denarii was about 20 weeks, five months worth of money. So, money you feel... But comparatively to this, uh, it's insignificant, right? It's insignificant. So the second servant does the same spiel to the first servant. Pleads with him. Right? Just like the first servant pleaded to the king. Did Did the first servant respond the way the king responded in the story? No, not at all. There is no grace. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness. There is just punishment. Lock the guy up. Throw him in jail. I want my money. Now, a whole other bunch of servants saw what was going on, and they knew the whole story. They're like, the master, the king, he's got to know about this, what's going on, about what this guy just did. So the other servants find out, and they bring the terrible news back to the king. And then we get to the last part of the parable, in verses 31 through 35. 31 through 35. Um, Now, The master hears the story, and he calls that first servant back. He calls him a wicked servant, okay? See, the king expected that the servant would act like he did. He expected that the servant would act like he That he would give the grace, that he would show the mercy, that he would grant the forgiveness as he was given those things. You know, he expected that his act of mercy would lead to others' acts of mercy. But here's the thing. If you're a type of person that operates from a point of selfishness, that operates from a point of pride, that operates from a point of entitlement, things like that, you will never let things like mercy motivate you to be merciful. That's not in your wheelhouse. Because you're all about you. You're not about... Being that kind, showing that sort of graciousness to another person. Okay? Now, as this, as this section goes on, there are great consequences to the servant and his actions. Um, you know, the, the king brings out this whole idea of mercy. Listen to what he says. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, and rightly so he was angry, he delivered him to the jailers. So this whole idea of mercy now comes up. And we see how mercy is connected to forgiveness. Mercy is connected to forgiveness. What is mercy? Mercy is the removal of a deserved punishment. That's what mercy is. The removal of a deserved punishment. People used to ask me all the time, like what's the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. A blessing that you don't deserve. Mercy is the removal of a punishment that you certainly deserve. Okay? Two sides of the same coin there. So mercy is the removal of a deserved punishment. Now mercy also, mercy is asked or in this case pleaded in the story to the person who has the ability to give it. Mercy is always asked of the one who has the ability to grant the mercy. Mercy. You know, if you remember the the movie from the '90s, right, Braveheart with Mel Gibson, you know, and at the very last scene, he's on, he's getting stretched and all that, and the and the and the guy, you know, the 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 guy who's organizing the punishment, the death, you know, he's like, all you got to do is say mercy, because that guy was the one who could tell the tell the people to stop, you know, drawing and quartering him. He had the power to do that. All you got to do is tell me mercy. So mercy is always asked of the person who has the ability to remove the punishment. Now, when you don't freely give to others the mercy that has been freely given to you, guess what happens? You're the one that pays the debt. You're the one that puts yourself in your own prison. That's what happens When you don't freely give the mercy that has been given to you, you've made your own jail cell because you have not shown mercy as you have been given mercy. Jesus ends this section. He says, If you do not, he's like, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. Do you have an unforgiving spirit? Is that something you struggle with? Listen, it's not an uncommon struggle. But do you, do you struggle with an unforgiving spirit? You see, if we have an unforgiving spirit, one thing it's showing in us is a lack of trust in God. That's, that's one thing it's showing in us. Uh, And it's also showing a lack of trust that God is at work in the life of your brother, in the life of your fellow servant. You know, if you if you struggle with this unforgiveness, I mean, it's directly correlated. Now, listen, I am I am greatly simplifying this because I understand we talk about relationships and histories and brokenness and emotions, and I, I get all of that, and those are real issues. And you need to deal with those. And you need to work hard through those. I mean, I get it. I get it. But at the very foundation of this, it's really how much do you trust God? Because God's forgiven you a lot, hasn't he? He's forgiven you a lot. He he has forgiven you more than what you realize he has forgiven you of. Okay? Okay. you know, if you're a person with an unforgiving spirit, you know, there are some internal conversations you're having. You know, you're, you're, you're saying, I don't want to trust that person. I mean, there's not even a desire, right? Um, you know, and if they try to make efforts to restore trust and rebuild a relationship, you, you push those efforts away. Those are some outward signs and inward signs that you struggle with an unforgiving spirit, you know, and so there's two sides to this, right? There's a person who needs to repent and there's a person who needs to show mercy and forgive. So someone who is unrepentant, you know, they are certainly inhibiting the fullness of forgiveness. Okay, listen, a person's repentance is not contingent on your forgiveness to them. Do you understand that? You're not supposed to walk around harboring unforgiveness. It's your job to forgive them whether they ask for it or not. And, but if they're unrepentant, the fullness of that forgiveness won't have its great effects. That relationship will always be broken to a degree. Does that make sense? Now, if you are not showing mercy, right? If your forgiveness, yeah, I understand and I forgive them and it's all up here and it's not down here, you're also inhibiting the fullness of the forgiveness that should be there. Are you following me? Okay. Um, The goal... Of forgiveness is a renewed intimacy. Okay, is my word up? My word's not up up there anymore. Remember this word? Reconciliation. that's, That's the goal. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because of his reconciling work to us through Jesus. So, how do, you do, how do you forgive from your heart? You forgive from your heart, first, you need to let go of your anger. Okay, because there's emotion tied to this. And so if you're walking around angry, you know, and you're just holding on to that because it makes you feel good, okay? And it's kind of being a little vindictive, like you're getting some justice out of it. Man, you've got to let that go. And you've got to remember what God said to Jonah. He says, Jonah does it do you good to be angry. No, it's not changing anything. Okay, you got to learn to let go of that anger. You need to entrust the person, the situation yourself to God. Okay, like Peter talked about with Jesus, entrusting to the one who judges justly. Part of entrusting this whole thing to God is that if you say you forgive someone, you can't keep bringing up the wrong that was done. You can't let it stay alive. you got to let it die because Jesus died for that, didn't he? Let's not put sin on each other that Jesus died for. Colossians chapter 2. And trust to God, and then do good as you have the opportunity to do good to them. You know, know, it says in... uh, Timothy, in, in, in 1 Timothy, it says, do good to everybody, especially to those in the household of faith, right? I mean, so we got let go of anger and trust to God, and man, we're going to do good to them, and this is how we forgive and practice forgiving from our hearts and loving people that way, you know, and remembering this whole extravagance that we were given so we can be generous. So, the whole parable, the whole parable is about God's forgiveness of your Sin and your forgiveness of other sin. That's what this parable is about. And so the question that Peter asks is our question, how do we forgive and keep forgiving the sin of others? How do I do this, Jesus? How do I do it? As many as seven times. And we remember the extravagant forgiveness that God has shown you. His extravagant forgiveness fuels your generous forgiveness. God's extravagance fuels our generosity. God's extravagance fuels our generosity. That's what we have got to remember. Any sin that another human can commit against you pales. Listen. The $20,000 sin that that person did to you today or this week pales in comparison to your $6 billion sin against God that he has wiped off your books. We have wicked rebel hearts. Praise God for his extravagant grace and mercy. Amen? Amen? Forgiveness will freely flow from a heart that has been made new, from a heart that has been transformed, from a heart that has been healed. That's where forgiveness freely flows. You know, there is a phrase, some of you guys, I'm sure you've heard me say this because this is one of my favorite lines I like to say. And I think it's a truth of the gospel that you and I, we are far worse than we ever imagined but we are more loved than we ever dreamed. And because of that truth, we can go to that brother, we can go to that sister, and we can forgive them from the heart because of the goodness of our Savior Jesus. Amen? Here's what I want you to do. Um, I don't know if I'm going to bring everybody down today. I I, I want you to give him, there's a few questions on your sheet. I think, you know, I, I just want you to just take a couple minutes. And I want you to think about some relationships in your life. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive right now that's been really hard for you? Um, You know, is there something that you're holding on to? You know, and in this, do you need to take a minute to remember what God has forgiven you of? Take a minute to remember his extravagance so you can be generous. So I don't know Brandon, if we can just throw on some music for like a minute or so, um, let me just give you guys just just some time. And you know what? If the person's in the room, man, walk across the aisle and have a little party of reconciliation, or make a phone call, or get your phone and text someone and say, "Can we grab coffee in the morning?" Okay. I mean, do something with it. So let's just take a couple minutes of quiet. I'll give you guys time to reflect and pray, and then I'll close this up in prayer in a minute. Father God, we come before you now, and we are remembering, oh, how you love us so. How your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness has been extravagant to us in the face of a debt that we didn't have a prayer to ever repay. You gave us your son, you were that good shepherd that went and saw us wandering and brought us back. And Lord, we thank you for that, we praise you for that overwhelm us now by your grace, Lord. Lord, help us to take that truth of your extravagance and clean our hearts out and let your forgiveness and grace and mercy flow freely through us to others because this life is hard and relationships are hard. And sin is deadly. And we got to deal with it rightly. And we thank you for your word that gives us direction and wisdom on that. And for your spirit to give us the strength we need to do these things, to honor you and to love each other well for your glory. So, Lord, help us to have those conversations tonight, tomorrow, this weekend. Get us out of jails we have built for ourselves wipe off the debt that's on the books, Lord, because you make all things new. You wash whiter than snow. You've given a great ministry of reconciliation, and you've given us all we need to live and walk in that, and we praise you for that tonight. So, Lord, thank you, and we are going to leave out of here not with heads hanging low, feeling built, beat up, and weighed down, but we're going to walk out of here empowered by your spirit, knowing that we have everything that we need through you to live this life. Because you are a good and gracious God. You are a good king. And you love us so. And we praise you when we ask all this in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, amen. All right, hey, I love you guys. You guys have a great night.